step um, in our look at the Apostles' Creed. Um, and so just let me pray before that. Just pray for, for me and pray for us as we prepare our hearts for the Word of God and what God might want to say to us this morning. <clears throat> so Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your Word. We want to thank you for direction it gives us, for encouragement it gives us, for the life it breathes into us, for the joy it brings to us and for the comfort it shows us. Lord, we, we praise you and thank you for your word, and we pray that as we look at it this morning, and as we hear from you this morning, that our hearts would be open. Holy Spirit, I pray that the things that our hearts need to be alert to quickly, that they would be, that you would cause that to happen in us. And I pray for myself, Lord, for my mind to be clear, and... Um, for you to receive glory for all that we do this morning as we look at your word. Amen. <clears throat> so we're going to read the first seven verses of Romans chapter 1 and um, Paul's introduction. So Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God, in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul is introducing himself and basically is introducing himself as someone who lives and serves for this man called Jesus Christ. And he goes to tell us who this Jesus Christ is, that he's the Son of God. Um, and he wants to create this right at the start. He wants to establish the fact that, you know, I'm Paul and, and I might garner some respect for the way that I lead churches, but I want you to know where, my grace, where grace comes from and who I serve. And that's what we're looking at this morning at Jesus Christ. We're looking at the Apostles' Creed. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago and we're doing it every few weeks and we learned that for centuries it's been used, and it's been used because it's a really concise statement of what we believe. It's a confession, if you like, or a creed. And we looked at the word credo and what that means, and it's this I believe and I will live to it. It's a creed, it's the way. And we, we discovered a couple of weeks ago that you know, creeds are not, they were, they were used a lot back then, and they're not, not used now. We just don't call them creeds. We call them, you know, we call them advertising slogans or values or things. And this is what I believe. And this is going to direct or going to move me in my life. And we discovered it's a good thing to look, to look at the Apostles' Creed. It's good for us to be reminded and to ask ourselves, do I really believe that? I might say that or I might read that. Do I really believe it? And, and if I do, do I, do I live consistently with it? Is, are there implications if I say this that I'm not actually living out? Or, or are there implications that, oh, oh, you know, if I'm saying that, then this is what it's going to mean. We also saw that it's not the Word of God, it's a creed written by men, but that it is firmly rooted in the Word of God, that every part of it can be firmly found back 
uh, through the, in the Word of God, through the Apostles' teaching. We discovered that it's a strong and a universal creed. It's used uh, universally by a lot of different um, denominations and faiths through the ages. And it very concisely sums up the Gospel teaching that the Apostles gave. It was used uh, back when people couldn't read or they didn't have the word. It was used to be able to, to give new believers the capacity to recite and to concisely say what they believe without saying too much. Believe. Why was it developed? We learnt also it was developed as a defence against heresy and it became a really helpful tool for growth and unity. It helped, um, people, to, it helped people to define what is Christian and what is not. And I remember speaking a couple of weeks ago about, you know, how do we define a cult or a sect? And the, what is Christian? What is Christ-focused and what is not? And right up till today, it's just as important for pretty much the same reasons. In fact, some, many would argue that this is where we are again. You know, if we're looking at back then, there was a heresy and, and it, was, um, it was necessary to define what it is to follow Christ or what the gospel is. Many people would argue that we're there again to stand against heresy, to, to be able to push against the cultural shifts that are trying to redefine gospel truth, both inside the church, in some churches, and outside the church. We looked at God as Father and Creator last, last time. And the basic premise of God as Creator, remember I talked about God's creative rights over us, um, God as creator and God as almighty, those two basic premises right at the start of the Apostles' Creed are challenged in today's culture wars. We often look at all the different things we're discussing and we think that it looks like the culture's trying to redefine humanity or we might call it sexuality or we might call it gender or whatever we're, we're looking at. But actually it's a, uh, sorry, it's a direct assault of the creator. God is almighty. That When he created, there was intention in his creation and this is how he did it. So the culture wars are actually a direct attack on God as creator, not so much on defining humanity. And for us, like the new believers in the 2nd and the 4th century, around the time when this was all developed, it's really important to know what we believe. You know, we, we really need to be able to know that. Have you ever been somewhere and people ask you, you know, what do you believe? And you sort of think, oh, how could I sum that up? What could I say? And you say something, you say, well, that's only part of it. And... It's really important for us to be able to understand what we believe and then to see if what we say we believe really does guide us or really does impact our lives. I read this this week. There was a commentator at the Reformed Theological Seminary in the US and he's got a really weird name. Dr. Ligon Duncan said this and I think I put that quote up there. He said, it's perfectly appropriate that Christians pause and think about these central affirmations we make in the Apostles' Creed because these affirmations impinge on the way we live our lives day to day in this increasingly hostile culture. In fact, I'd argue that each of the assertions in the Apostles' Creed, grounded as they are in Scripture, point to really very important matters for Christians in the cultural setting in which we find ourselves today. This was only written about two months ago. That's very actual. And he's saying this is the Apostles' Creed is important for today, for now. It's what we have to stand against um, what we see in our culture. 
And so last time we looked at the first line, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and we discovered if we really believe it at His implications, if God is a Father and He's a loving and committed Father, because that's what we looked at Scripture, that's what I can can trust Him with myself. I I can allow myself to be loved. If God is Almighty... And the word says that he's almighty and there's nothing my God cannot do. Does anyone think of Colin Buchanan when I say that? You know, if, if God really is almighty and there's nothing he can do, then I really can trust him with my life. I really can trust him with the calls that he places on my life and, and the things that he asks me to do. Get into a panic. There is nothing that's surprising him that he's not in control of. And if he's creator and if he created me and the world around me, then he knows best how my world works and how I work. And so it's, it's, to my, it's in my interests to allow him to direct how this creation lives for him. And that's what we looked at. We looked at the implications of saying, this is what I believe. Today, we want to look at the next line. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. <clears throat> and this is a key line because what you believe about Jesus Christ uh, can determine what you think about almost anything else. Each of the truths in the Apostles' Creed about Jesus are important for the understanding, for us to to help us understand why it is that Jesus is the only way to salvation. And this is really clear in the Apostles' Creed when we talk about Jesus. You know, when we say that Jesus is the only way, you've got to surrender to Jesus, he's the only way to heaven. Saying that even in some churches in our day makes people feel uncomfortable because we want to be inclusive, right? We, you know, it's got to be easier. To say it in other places outside the church that Jesus is the only way might make people look at you strange or at least unfriend you on Facebook or wherever it is. And if you're concerned a little bit about how bold and forceful that statement is, that it's maybe too absolute or um, it's too much, then take comfort. It was just as bold back then that is today remember the proclamation of jesus as the only way of salvation that peter made in acts chapter 4 i think we have that one up here where he said and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved now that statement is wonderful and we celebrate and we think yes you know and that's what the apostles creed says But it was made, that statement back then was made in the midst of a dominant pluralist culture like we're living in now. Here's what I was reading. Rome was a controlling power in the Mediterranean world and Rome was perfectly happy for you to believe in your God. As long as you didn't believe that your God was the only God. Rome was quite happy actually to add Jesus to that pantheon of its gods. There were Roman emperors that even did that, but Rome was not prepared to tolerate people who made universal claims, at least not usually. The Jews got by with it for a while, but the Romans didn't like them anyway. So when Christians came along and began to make these outlandish claims, like we've just read there, it quickly caught the attention of the Roman authorities and the persecution of the early Christians almost always emanated from that point. Because of total, universal, unconditional commitment to Jesus Christ, Christians were considered a threat to the stability of the empire. Is anyone feeling the heebie-jeebies? Is anyone feeling that 
that's almost where we are these days. In this universal, you know, this, this sense of this unconditional commitment to Jesus, universally saying that he's the only way, that's becoming threatening. So the empire that, um, that this was spoken into is not so much different. So when you or I are looked at as if you just crawled out from under a rock when you say that Jesus is the only way, join the club. Christians before you got those same looks and, and worse. <laughs> At any rate, each phrase of what the Apostles' Creed says about Jesus really explains to us why Jesus is the only way, why this line is so important in the Apostles' Creed. Let's look at the three things we're saying. We're saying, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. And the third thing we're saying is, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. I just want to look at those three things with you this morning. So we're looking at Jesus Christ. Jesus wasn't an uncommon name back then. In Hebrew, um, it means to save, or perhaps better, uh, to deliver or to rescue was probably a better Hebrew uh, rendition of that. In fact, many rulers and, and guys that liked to lead or thought they were pretty good took on that name because they saw themselves as that, or they wanted uh, their followers or the people around them to see themselves as that. <clears throat> you know, Or there might have been a hero that saved the day, or there might have been someone that, that was, you know, aspirationally wanted to be a hero, and they would take on that name, Jesus. It wasn't an uncommon name. Parents <clears throat> might name their son Jesus in the hope that he might be a rescuer or a saver or a hero or something like that. And then can you imagine the parent when he finds out his son just wants to read books or play you know, computer games all the time and think, well, that was a waste of a name, wasn't it? You know. <laughs> anyway, no, but they didn't have those. Anyway, so, the, so his fellow fighters, and he might have saved a town or a city or a throne, and uh, then they would name him Jesus and it wasn't just an uncommon name. In fact, even now, in some cultures, still now, it's not an uncommon name uh, in, in Spanish. Jesus, you'll see names like that, and you'll see it in, in some cultures is still used. However, Christ was not at all common, and it was an audacious thing to call yourself Christ. In Greek, it's Christos, which means anointed one. And this word that was Jesus the Messiah was translated Jesus Christ out of that Hebrew word Messiah. It means anointed by God. So Christ is not Jesus' surname, just by the way, you know. And so when you put these two names together, Jesus Christ, these names together tell me that he's a rescuer anointed by God himself. He's not just a great man. He's not just someone that can save. He's not just a hero or a. But he's, you know, he. So when I say I believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus, the person, it's a name. But he isn't just a man who aspires to save or hopes to be mighty or even just wants to be seen as mighty. But he's Jesus Christ. And there's a real difference when you say that. Who was chosen and anointed by God to save me and all humanity. What that means is he trumps all other savers. What I mean by that is all the things that I try, 
to find to save my life, my own can do, or someone else I depend on, or a, a modem of opera, a, a, a way of operating, or, or whatever it might be, all the other ways that I try to save myself in life. And we all do that. We all try to rescue ourselves and we all try to do it ourselves. And, and we'll see that later when we talk about the Lordship of Christ. When I say I believe in Jesus Christ, He is the only one, who, He's the one that was anointed by God to save me. He is the only one that can rescue me from myself and from the things that would seek to bring me down. So the implication is that I needed and I need salvation and I need Jesus Christ, anointed by God, a Messiah. Not just any saviour will or can do. I believe I need a saviour and in Jesus Christ I have one. Praise God. That's what we're saying when we say that first line. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe, and he was the only one that could have done it. So it's a kind of surrender statement, isn't it? The implication is that I can't go through life trying to do it myself, then on occasions, <clears throat> in desperation, praying and asking God to step in for the tough ones. Anyone else recognise that they do? I do that all the time. I can't go through life. It gets tough. I get on my knees because if I do that, that would be I believe in Andrew Boonstra, wouldn't it? Or I believe in Donna, or I believe whatever your name is. So it's a surrender statement. When I say I believe in Jesus Christ, that means I'm surrendering myself. This statement is about a complete surrender to a complete saviour. And so that phrase, Jesus, when we repeat the creed and we say I believe in Jesus Christ, we have already said heaps. We've said so much. And my question this morning to myself and to you is, can you say that? Can you say those first four words? I believe in Jesus Christ. When we think of that. And that's something for us to ponder, isn't it? But all good. We go on and we talk about, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. And so right off the bat, we see that our saviour, this Jesus Christ, this this. this you know, this anointed rescuer isn't just any man, he's not just a good man, but he's also divine. He's the son of God. Now, divinity is really important, isn't it? He's the son of God, God's only son, and we, his only son, we're affirming the deity of Jesus Christ. We're affirming that he's divine. And it's absolutely essential you might not think about this, and, and, and I confess I haven't, haven't often thought of it, but it's absolutely essential. Now, to understand how important this part of the creed, these few words, became, became and the power of them, here's an example I read, where, the, where, these, where these words actually became important to say, to know, is this what we believe? In 1680, years ago, a belief had become widespread in the Christian church that had never been widespread before. There was a very articulate the theologian. He had begun to teach that Jesus was not divine. This teaching was so cleverly put. He was a masterful speaker, an entertaining speaker. And listen to this, this is really interesting. He had such excellent music put with it to foster it into the churches that he was trying to do it that people began to embrace it. There were people literally riding in the streets of Alexandria and Egypt, chanting a new hit Christian song. And the lyrics went like this. This is a true story. 
And the lyrics went like this. There was a time when the word was not. Okay, we wouldn't write a song like that now, but that was the, the word being word capital W with Jesus. There was a time when the word was not. In other words, they were saying it was an affirmation that Jesus was not eternal, that God created him. He is the first of all created things, but he's not equal with God. He doesn't share the same essence of God. He's not fully divine. Well, the church was in turmoil. There was a council called and a great theologian, another great theologian, made his mark in arguing against this teaching. He wrote a book on the incarnation. And here's a thesis of this man, Athanasius. He said, if Jesus is not fully divine, then you're still in your sin. If Jesus is not truly the unique eternal Son of God, co-equal with his Father and the Holy Spirit, then our salvation is compromised and lost. Because his divinity is necessary for our salvation. Let me say that again. His divinity, Jesus being divine, is necessary for our salvation. How else can he pay for the sins of the world? How can he offer a sacrifice of infinite value if he is less than divine? Now, when I was reading that, I was thinking, you know what? How many times do we look at, we, we see things and we see things creeping into the church and we see things and they, you know, they, they feel like they're, they're, no, they're good, but they you ever had that not quite right thing? And they're, they're, but they're great speakers and they can draw a big crowd and the beautiful music and everything. The Apostles' Creed tells us this is what we believe and if it doesn't align with that, then it isn't good. It just isn't. Athanasius was right. The deity of Christ is the hinge on which Christianity turns. And Paul emphasises that in our scripture this morning, didn't he? he that, that he is the son of God and he talks about that in, in verses 3 to 6 and I pop them back up there. This is what he said in our reading. Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we've received grace and apostleship, through whom we've been saved, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, including you and me. Paul's saying, yeah, I'm talking about Jesus. Yes, Jesus Christ. Not only is he Jesus Christ, but he was declared to be the Son of God. And this is the one to whom you're called. Not just a good man, but the Son of God. And it's through him that you've received the grace. And you don't get this comes from divinity. And that's why it's really important to understand that. And the beautiful line I like there is it includes you too. You know, that divinity, that salvation from a divine God is, is for me and it is for you. And that's the celebration of that. But when we talk about God's only son, there's another truth here that I think God's only son, when we see God's only son, tells us of the incredible generosity of God, doesn't it? And his commitment to his children, us. It takes a heart full of love and commitment to give up your only son. So when we say his only son, we're saying, wow, God, love us. So much. You know, there's another place we see a bit of a reflection of this in Genesis 22. Um, and I think I've spoke about it before in Abraham. And, and I put the verses up there because it's almost a, in Genesis um, 
22 verses 1 and 2. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I'll tell you. You see that your only son, who you love, and sacrifice him. Your only, do you see it? And offer him up. Now there's, there's heaps in the story of Abraham and, and God. But see the echo that God recognises this. Your only son, the one you love, give him to me, sacrifice him to me. And it's pointing forward to a time that that would happen. And we'll see in God's word, it says later in verse 12, I think a little bit further, I think we have that one there. You know, we, we know the story. He got up there and he was about to, to, to slay his son Isaac. And, and God said, do not, don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything for him, uh, to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing as you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. You know, I was looking at um, fearing God. What, 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 so I know, now I know that you fear God. Well, when someone, when Abraham, in the way that Abraham feared God, and when you fear God, it's, a, it's a, an absolute loving commitment. It's not fear as in I'm scared of God. Now, we understand that, don't we? The fear of God is this absolute commitment to God because we love him so much. Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his only son showed his commitment to and love for God. And we see that it brought blessing. You know, because you've not withheld your son, he goes on to say, this is what's going to come. And, and you're going to become the father of, of, of huge nations and, and many people. When God gave his only son, God didn't get the blessing like Abraham did. We did. Picture isn't complete, is it? Because Abraham was blessed because he was willing to offer up his own son. Well, it would follow that God is blessed. Well, he's not. We get it. He gives it to us. And Abraham didn't even have to go through with it. God did. Didn't he? How great is it that God loved us so much, was so committed to his relation. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son. Divinity stepped in with great love and generosity and saved me. So we haven't even finished this morning's line yet, have we? What does that say about you and I? It places great value on us, doesn't it, on you and me? If we're truly loved. Why would I not surrender what's best for me? He, he must have a plan. You don't offer up your son, your only son, if you don't have a loving plan. That would be an absolute waste. So why would I not surrender to this God who would do that for me, who clearly knows what's best for me? That brings me to my knees. What about you? And there is one more, our Lord. <clears throat> Notice that Paul says in our reading, our Lord. He doesn't say, my Lord, and I kind of hope he's yours too. This is my Lord, I hope he's yours. He's, he, he makes a statement, our Lord. It's just an absolute statement. It's a confession here. He's not just my Lord, he's our Lord. He's declaring the Lordship of Jesus Christ. As like, it's not, I feel he's my Lord, but he might not be your Lord. No, he is, he is Lord. <clears throat> He is it whether you acknowledge it or not. This was another one of those absolute statements, our Lord. He has lordship over you is basically what he was saying. And there's many, even Christians, who like the idea of Jesus as saviour, 
but not so much as Lord. That's a little bit tougher. Why? Because lordship would suggest that I'm not in control, that I don't get to live for my own sake or for my own glory or for my own success or dreams, but that I'm supposed to be obedient to God. That's why we don't like lordship. We like the saviour bit. I'm going to heaven, I'm saved, and hallelujah, God is great. You know, he gave his only son. The lordship bit, a bit tougher, a bit harder to handle. In our reading, again, Paul says in, in verse 5, he says it and he talks about um, and what God has done and he says, through whom we received grace and apostleship to bring about <clears throat> the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. The reason is his lordship is to, to bring about our obedience for his glory, the sake of his name. To bring about or to cause the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, God's glory. This doesn't only make many of us uncomfortable at times, but it flies in the face of our culture which says it's about me. It's just this countercultural big time. I'm sure I harp on enough about that up here. You know, I talk about that enough. But we can remove Jesus from his position in lordship of lord, his position of lordship in so many ways. Some of them are big ones, big and obvious in the culture wars and the things that we see. We we can see obviously that that the world and humanity is just removing um, the lordship of Christ out of life in so many ways. So some are big and obvious. But as I was reflecting this week, there are so many small ways in our own lives, so many subtle little ways that we do that ourselves, that I pop myself in that place. I don't want to surrender. Even right down to how I serve him sometimes on my own terms. You know, and it made me think, you know, I, I led worship for years in, 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 in Europe and, and around Europe and in YWAM and, and even, and I can remember oftentimes, you know, leading worship, even in my service of him, you know, wanting to choose the songs that, that fitted best with the instruments or wanting to choose, and, and knowing sometimes that God had asked me to sing this song, but it was a bit of a boring song or it was hard to strum on the guitar and I couldn't make it sound nice and then I would... You know what I mean? And maybe that sounds terrible, but sometimes we just... You know, that was my lordship. That was all about me, placing myself in the frame. You know, preaching messages. You know, I, I want to do short, sharp. You know, let, let's, let me preach on grace this week because that's what they'll want because they don't like it when I nail them all the time, you know. And they'll, they'll be more friendly or they'll say, oh, that was a good short sermon. And who's that about? I know you all love the good short sermons. and. <laughs> But seriously, even as I serve God, I can subtly place myself in the frame. First year of my life back here in Australia, I didn't want to be here. And that, it was God's will for me to be here, but I fought against God's lordship and I kept putting myself in the frame for a whole year until I surrendered to what God had for me. And I still do it. You know, it's tough to talk about that stuff in church, especially when you get into service and worship leading or prayer and that, because we feel uncomfortable. We get offended because we take it so personally. But it's so subtle, none of us are immune from it. There are so many ways that we just shift God's lordship, and we can make it sound really holy, and we make it about us. God didn't call me up here to preach to make myself look good. 
If he asks me to share a word, then he sh- I share a word. God didn't call me back in those days to lead worship or do something to do it the way that so I could get my story told or something. It's the God's story that needs to be told. And I do it in my life, and, and that's in my, my ministry area, but I do it in so many areas. None of us are immune to that. So when we say our Lord, he has lordship over our life. Remember he has those creative rights that I talked about as well. If I say Jesus is Lord, it has implications. And I need daily correction and steering. And so do you. Paul makes it clear that if Jesus is divine, if he's the Messiah King, would as well. And our fundamental confession, we don't say Jesus is Saviour, although he is, his name means Jesus saves, remember? But our fundamental Christian confession, we say Jesus is Lord, don't we? That's what we say in songs. That's what we say, Jesus is Lord. And look at Romans 10 verse 9. I think I got that on there. On what basis is man saved? Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So lordship is really important, isn't it? We confess that he's Lord. And do we mean it? The confession of the lordship of Christ is fundamental It's a fundamental Christian confession. But here's the thing. I can talk about all the things I need to get right and we need to get right, but it's not our practical obedience to the Lordship of Christ that makes us Christians. If that was true, salvation would be by works. We aren't saved by our obedience to the Lordship of Christ. We're saved to our obedience to the Lordship of Christ. Let me say that again. I think I'll put that up there. There might, be a, there might be a slide for that or not. Yes, we are. This is important. We are not saved by our obedience to the Lordship of Christ. We're saved to our obedience to the Lordship of Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ, a rescuer anointed by God, who is generously giving the only Son of God to obedience to lordship that's what i was saved to you believe jesus is lord you believe and confess jesus is lord and then it leads you to a life of willing submission to the lord but before we can truly say our lord in the apostles creed we have to be able to say my lord in our hearts don't we may god enable us afresh to do that here today And we do that with our worship when we sing. And that's why it's important for us to fix our eyes on God when we gather together as a family. So that we can truly say, oh yeah, that's my Lord. And then we can get together and say, our Lord. He has Lordship over us. This is my King. May God enable us to do that. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. What a powerful line in our confession. And I only scratched the surface here today, guys. This declares our great privilege, our great blessing, the favour from God of God that we have. And it talks about our obligation and call to bring glory to God with all that we have and all that we are. Now, I said to you last time, when the Apostles' Creed, we're going to actually do it. So... Before we finish, before I pray, we're going to stand and I think it'll be up there again and we are going to confess the Apostles' Creed together and then I'll pray to close. So what do we believe? 
I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. God, we are, again, just want to say thank you to you for your word, but also for your work in the hearts and minds of the apostles in the early church that have formulated for us and helped us to see and helped us to gather together what your word says to us about how great you are, how much you've done for us, how much you love us, and what we can stand and declare to know as the truth. And Lord, we've only just begun, and yet we've seen so many wonderful things. We've seen that you're a, a loving, almighty, creating and making Father that we can truly um, surrender to. And we've seen today, Jesus, that you are a, an anointed rescuer, that you are divine, you're God's only Son. And God, you've been so generous in giving your Son, and that you're our Lord. Why would we not surrender to you? Why would we not give our lives to you? May you receive the glory today in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing.